word. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Read that far from God's word. In war, one army attacks another. Pretty straightforward. But victory is more frequently dependent upon how quickly the second, third, and fourth attacks happen. In human warfare throughout history, they've discovered that, and a basic tactic is to attack the enemy with waves without a pause, striking him repeatedly before he has the opportunity to recover his defenses. And the same kind of assault is characteristic in spiritual warfare. And here in our study, in the Gospel of Mark, our author vividly described how Jesus himself was the object of such waves of spiritual attack. first wave was in chapter 11, 27, when Jesus was asked, by what authority did you overturn the tables in the temple? The second wave was in chapter 12, verse 14, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And now here in chapter 12, verse 23, the third wave asking about a test case of marriage, followed by repeated deaths and repeated remarriages. The first wave attack question was about religious power. Who has authority in the temple? The second wave attack question was about government power. Who has the power to tax us? And here now the third wave attack question is about God's power, a purely theological question arising from a specific test case about death and remarriage. The first question came from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. The second question came from the Pharisees and Herodians. And here this third question came from the Sadducees. One thing that all three of those groups agreed upon, Jesus must be destroyed. They were spiritual attacks against him in order to destroy him. So the series of questions we're encountering were a spiritual attack on Jesus, but as we'll see again this third time tonight, no one stumps Jesus. Thus the title. And that brings us to our main point. Despite another trick question, Jesus proved from Scripture that not even death could break the everlasting covenant promise of God to the patriarchs. We'll see from verse 18 how the Sadducees believe there will be no resurrection. Very simple, and yet we'll unpack that a bit. Verses 19 to 23, the Sadducees assumed that a resurrection would cause absurd implications. And then third, third point from verses 24 to 27, the teaching of Jesus here, he answered that the power of God taught in Scripture clearly showed that the Sadducees were wrong about the resurrection. 
So first, verse 18, in our first point, the Sadducees believe there will be no resurrection. Think about this position. The Sadducees believe there's no future resurrection. So think of what that means for their viewpoint of the world, how they view things. For each baby born, there's one lifetime in this world, and that's all there is. Because if you don't have a resurrection, it's just however many years you have. Two years, 10 years, 50, 110. That's how many years you got, and that's it. That's pretty sad already. But I believe you know people like this. You know people who believe that this world and this life is all we have. In fact, there's so many people that are fellow citizens of ours in our modern nation who believe this that I'm going to say a couple things to show you just how long this has been a very popular belief. In 1965, a singer named Frank Sinatra said, quote, you only live once, and the way I live, once is enough, end quote. What a terrible quote. But it shows you that already in the 60s, there were people believing this. And then soon after that, coincidentally, a 1966 commercial for a liquid refreshment had this sales line. You only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can. I'm not about to advertise for them, but you can look it up. Lately, this mindset is shortened to YOLO, Y-O-L-O, you only live once. It's common, so common in our culture that there are various ways that I can briefly show you abbreviations for this phrase across our land. There are modern-day Sadducees, people who believe that this life is absolutely it. The Sadducees, though, were priests. They were leaders in the religious community. That temple, there all these interchanges and questions took place where Jesus was attacked wave after wave inside that temple. This group, the Sadducees group, was the group from which each new high priest would be selected to be over that temple. So the temple was the special domain of the Sadducees. This temple in which Jesus is standing as he teaches and talking with the Sadducees was their temple, you see, at least from their perspective. We know it's God's temple, but from their perspective, this is their turf. So they're challenging Jesus in an area in which they believe they had authority. Their temple, in fact, was the very same temple where the previous day, Jesus had overturned the temples, uh, the tables. And Jesus had aggressively cleansed the temple, their temple, see? That's why the Sadducees were motivated to destroy Jesus. And since it didn't work, the other two questions, they're trying this new tactic. So the crowds contain groups of people who were of two differing opinions on this controversial theological topic I'll get into in a moment. Two different opinions existed about this theological topic. So the potential was there for Jesus to cause an alienation of a significant subset of the crowd, no matter how he answered this question. The possibility is there for him to alienate a significant group of people within the crowd. And then the same debate that we're about to unpack showed up again later in the Bible, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Let me read Acts 23, verses 6 to 8, just briefly, and it shows you how there's a group of Sadducees, another group called the Pharisees, and how Paul 
had to interact with them in a very divisive way. Acts 23, verse 6, When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. End quote. That's Acts 23, verses 6 through 8. So the only thing I'm doing now is making my first point, and it's been confirmed by the quote from Acts. The Sadducees believe there will be no resurrection. That brings us now to our second point, if you're ready to dig in to the question they ask. Point two. The Sadducees assumed that a resurrection would cause absurd implications. So verse 19 begins, and the Sadducees approached Jesus with their attack. I would call this the third wave attack. And they referred to Jesus as teacher. Where have we heard that title before? Oh, yes, as recently as the second wave attack, verse 14, when the Pharisees and Herodians referred to Jesus as teacher. Do you see it in verse 14? So here we go again now in verse 19, attack wave number three. So group after group refer to Jesus as teacher, but none of them listened to his teaching. Here the Sadducees spoke to the teacher by giving the background to their question to Jesus. God had made provision for a family to be raised up if a married man suddenly died before having children so that his wife was left a widow and childless. God had mercy in such a situation and he made a provision and it's part of God's law in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10 and we call it leveret marriage. It simply means that the brother of the deceased husband would be asked to marry her so that she would have offspring. How it worked was the nearest relative would step forward in order to marry the widow so that she would have a child, and her first child would then be counted as the child of the former deceased husband. Why? What's the big deal? We just don't easily grasp this as modern people. The provision from God would be to carry the deceased deceased husband's name forward. Because if he died, his whole family is extinct, you see. So it would carry his name forward because his name and his line of descendants was tied to that man's honor. To honor the dead man, they would protect the man's family by giving him a family. His family line would not be lost, so his name would not be lost, and consequently his honor would not be lost. So it's an example of this is is found in the story of Ruth. If you remember, it's integral to the story of Ruth. This provision from God sounds to us rather awkward. And to be honest, for a lot of modern people, it's rather repulsive. But in the ancient world, you have to understand and accept that it was understood as a merciful gift from God. So this whole thing I just explained enters our story in verses 20. 21, 22, and 23. Because here, the Sadducees picked up this process of the leveret marriage and they presented to Jesus a test case that was itself absurd. You have to admit that if they gave a test case with two husbands who each died leaving behind the same woman as a widow of both brothers, that would have been sufficient to make their point and ask their gotcha question at the end. Which husband will be her husband at the end. But in the crazy example 
that the Sadducees put to Jesus here, this poor woman will have seven deceased husbands in a row. One commentary made me laugh out loud because it said, husband killer? Question mark. That's obviously not part of their their question. But the Sadducees assume that this situation must not take place in heaven, the situation of having seven husbands for her, because the Sadducees are assuming that if there was a resurrection, and if there was a heaven, that God would insist marriage in heaven would have to be just like marriage on earth, which is one man, one woman, that's God's law. But this is yet another place where the Sadducees were wrong. They have so many wrong things, it's hard to even say them all. But for the Sadducees, their complex question was a hypothetical story, a debating ploy. They're playing a version of verbal chess with Jesus, trying to show that a future resurrection cannot be true by showing the ridiculous scenarios that the existence of a future resurrection would cause. If it causes really absurd things, it can't be God's way, it can't be true. So if the resurrection were true, just look at what might happen. Let me paint a story for you. So they paint this story of seven deaths. And since that thought is ridiculous, the Sadducees want us then to conclude that the thought of a future resurrection as a whole is absurd and ridiculous. Do you see the, the logic behind their posing this question? So the Sadducees are figuring that since God gave Leveret marriage in Deuteronomy, it's God's book, right? About marrying and remarrying this way, God must be showing us, consequently, that there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees were attempting to show that the teaching about the resurrection is impossible, and they're using this extreme example around God's merciful allowance regarding Leveret marriage as their proof. It's a classic type of debating tactic for the sake of winning an argument. It's uh, the kind of question that every Sadducee's son in elementary school would ask every Pharisee's son in elementary school because it's a zinger that they can't answer and you always win. No one had found an answer to it, so the question kept getting asked next generation, next generation with Winning results for the Sadducees every time. So here the Sadducees ask their classic, uncrackable question to Jesus, expecting that even the great teacher would have no answer to the toughest of questions. They're trying to stump Jesus with their question and bring doubt about the resurrection on the whole crowd. In fact, they're also trying to get in a win against the Pharisees who do believe in the resurrection. So their question would have considerable potential impact on the crowd. It's not just some irrelevant theological question like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Who cares? Who knows? Doesn't matter. This matters. Why does it matter? Because people are marrying all the time. Spouses die all the time. And surviving spouses remarry all the time. So the prospect of one day after we pass to encounter more than one former spouse in the resurrection in heaven is a real prospect. It's important 
that this question get answered correctly. What becomes of the earthly monogamous marriage bond when it's shared in eternity with more than one marriage partner? For the answer, we turn to the words of Jesus, brings us to our third point, verses 24 to 27. Jesus answered that the power of God taught in Scripture clearly showed the Sadducees were wrong about the resurrection. So we start with verse 24. The first thing Jesus said was that the Pharisees were wrong. (laughs) The first thing Jesus said is the Pharisees were wrong. It's also the last thing that Jesus said, if you look down to the end of verse 27. The first thing he said is you're wrong. Anyone who denies the resurrection has fallen into error. Period. We can start with that. We can say it in the middle. We can say it at the end. It's an absolute non-negotiable. So the teacher, the teacher who we listen to, the great teacher himself, the Lord Jesus, is teaching everyone in the story, and he's through Mark's gospel teaching us that the resurrection is a non-negotiable basic teaching. Even today, the modern-day Sadducees I've mentioned, as soon as they say there can be no heaven, there can be no afterlife, there is no resurrection of Jesus, there's no resurrection of anyone else, we automatically know that they're in serious error and that they're involved in spiritual opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, by the way, the resurrection and the life, as he says in John 11. So the Sadducees were wrong. Jesus right away said they're wrong. And then he went further by saying that the Sadducees are wrong for two reasons. A, they didn't know the scriptures. B, they didn't know the power of God. In verse 25, Jesus corrected them by teaching that those who rise from the dead will not marry. There's no marriage in heaven. But instead, all believers are like the angels of heaven. They're like the angels of heaven in this one specific way, that they don't marry. Not like the angels in other ways, just for the argument of this case. Now let's consider this from the perspective of the Sadducees. If there will be no resurrection, it means that when people die, they're gone and that's it. What does that show about the existence of the human race? Anybody know someone alive today who's 200 years old or older? You get the issue? If everybody's dying off, then in this world, we need to continue to have babies or there aren't going to be any human beings on the earth. That whole concept, the Sadducees take into the next world. If there's no resurrection, what's going to have to keep happening in the afterlife? What's going to have to keep happening in heaven? You're going to have to have marriage because you're going to have to have babies because everybody's dying off. You see how ridiculous this becomes? But from their perspective, to be consistent with what a Sadducee says... They're going to have to have marriage in heaven. They had such a small view of God that they seemed to think heaven is just like what we know now. They can't imagine anything big, new, or different because it's just a continuation of everything that we have now as we know it now. It'll just be maybe a little bit bigger. If they had understood the power of God, the power of God to absolutely revolutionize and transform everything about our existence in the new world, in the heavens, then they could think differently and they would already have known what Jesus is here beginning to teach them. So verse 26, Jesus said, 
All right, in the book of Moses, which could be five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He narrows it down a bit, right? In the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush. I should have started with a quiz. Where, where's the story in the book of Moses about the bush? It's, it's Exodus chapter 3. You know right away where this is. It's the story about Moses and the burning bush. Why there? Jesus wanted them to be able to look it up and believe from their book, and from, by the way, they also believed more in the, those five books of Moses than they did in the other books of, of the Old Testament. So he proved it from the books they're most trusting in. If he could prove it from the scriptures, then they would believe it, right? He also wanted, he not only wanted them to be able to look it up, telling them where it was, but he wanted to make his case from that section of the Old Testament that they trusted the most, and from a familiar story perhaps to the crowd. So from that story, he says this statement that we read, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and he makes this concluding point, verse 27. He's not the God of the dead. In other words, Abraham's not dead. Isaac's not dead. Jacob's not dead. If they were, then what good is it to be the God of them? He's the God of the living. Abraham's living and Isaac's living and Jacob's living. This is the beautiful thing that he taught. So in in these two verses, 26 and 27, Jesus taught from the Bible that since the God is the God of living, the conclusion must be drawn, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. And so in his masterful reply, he accomplished four things very quickly. Number one, he showed why it was that the Sadducees had committed a glaring error. Ignorant of the scriptures and the power of God. Number two, he proved his point by removing their false assumption that marriages on earth are continued in heaven. That's not how it works at all. He did that. Number three, he proved the truth about a future resurrection from Scripture. And number four, he drew the only possible answer to the trick question and stated it with two words in the original, expanded to four words in our English Bibles here in the English Standard Version. At the end of verse 27, you are quite wrong. (laughs) As the only possible conclusion to the trick question, you are quite wrong. Had the Sadducees recognized the power of God, they would have understood that God is able to raise the dead in such a manner that marriages and having babies from those marriages will no longer be needed in order to perpetuate the race of humans because the living humans in heaven will each themselves have everlasting life. Heaven will forever be populated by us. (laughs) This is the point that he's making, which the Sadducees have completely missed. And Jesus actually challenged their underlying assumption theologically. He set out to challenge the wrong assumption that an afterlife would be just like our lives now and therefore consequently also challenged their other assumption that we could evaluate the future afterlife in terms of our current understanding of life on earth right now. Who do we think we are that we can just project onto stuff we don't know what we're talking about, stuff that I've seen or known in my short years? Crazy. Like Paul tries to describe in the amazing resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. It's in the middle of Paul's gigantic argument there in chapter 15 about resurrection. It's precisely how the Sadducees were failing to appreciate the power of God 
that resurrection is not a matter of human power and human figuring. Resurrection is a matter of God's power. They did not get that. So Jesus accomplished a lot in his short answer. What have we seen? Despite another trick question, Jesus proved from Scripture that not even death could break the everlasting covenant promise of God to patriarchs, that the Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. Therefore, they concluded these absurd implications, which aren't true. And Jesus answered that the power of God taught in Scripture clearly showed the Sadducees were wrong about the resurrection. And again, no one stumps Jesus. I have two concluding applications for us. Number one, believe in the power of God because it's for salvation. Believe in the power of God because it's for salvation. I'll tell you a story. A little boy named Philip was born with Down syndrome and he attended a third grade Sunday school class with eight-year-old boys and girls. Typical of that age, the children didn't really accept Philip because he had Down syndrome and there were differences that they could see but not quite fully understand. They just didn't accept him. But because of a loving and creative Sunday school teacher, they began to care about Philip a little bit more and a little bit more and started to accept him a little bit as part of their group, though not yet fully. Sunday after Resurrection Sunday one year, the teacher brought pantyhose containers. You remember, ladies, the the kind that look like large eggs on top? Each one receiving one of those containers, the children were told, go outside on a lovely spring Sunday and find some symbol of new life, put it in your egg-shaped container and bring it back in. And once they're back in the classroom, they would share with each other in the class their new life symbols, opening the containers one by one in surprise fashion. So after running about the church property in wild confusion, the students returned into the classroom and placed their containers on the front table. And surrounded by the children, the Sunday school teacher began to open the egg-shaped containers one by one. And after each one, whether it's a flower, a butterfly, a leaf, the class would ooh and ah, and the teacher would make some explanation to connect it to the lesson. And then one egg-shaped container was opened, revealing there's nothing inside. And the children exclaimed, that's not fair, as children are wont to do. Somebody didn't do their assignment, said all the class, and they're griping about this. And Philip, rather courageously, spoke up and said, that's mine. Philip, you don't ever do things right, said the mean students. There's nothing in yours. I did so do it, Philip says. I did do the assignment. It's empty. The tomb was empty. Silence followed. Not even the teacher could improve on that statement. And from then on, Philip was embraced as a full member of the class. Because of an infection that perhaps most children would have been able to shrug off, Philip actually died not long after this incident. And at the funeral, the little class of eight-year-old boys and girls marched up to the front, not with flowers, but with their Sunday school teacher each to lay on the casket an empty pantyhose egg because they all believed in the resurrection. May God give us grace to be like the boys and girls in that class and not like these Sadducees, leaders of the temple, and don't believe in the resurrection.
Paul writes how important it is. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The reason the Sadducees were wrong is because they didn't know or believe in the power of God. They didn't embrace the gospel. This is core to the gospel itself. They didn't embrace Christ by faith. And that's the concluding application for us. Embrace the power of God. Believe in it. Know the power of God. Believe in the gospel, which is the good news about resurrection. Jesus died for our sins and rose again, giving us resurrection tied to his resurrection. Listen to how Paul, a Pharisee, remember, wrote about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, and a couple other verses I'll mention. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 23. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lives again, we will live again. Because Jesus lives forever, we will live forever. We believe in the power of God for salvation. That's one concluding application. I have a second one just briefly. Take it from the teacher, Jesus, that not even death can break the everlasting covenant promise of God to the patriarchs. Patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's promise didn't suddenly stop for Abraham after Abraham died. God's promises and blessings don't suddenly stop for us when we die. The God who revealed himself and called himself the God of Abraham is the unchangeable, eternal, covenant God who blesses, loves, encourages, and protects his people. Rather than blessings of God continuing forward after our deaths and beyond our deaths, this is what we believe rather than what the Sadducees believe. This is taught by God even in the Old Testament. So let me end with one Old Testament passage to help us to take from Jesus our teacher that not even death could break the everlasting covenant promise of God. Psalm 16, 10 and 11. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament word for the place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How could it say forevermore unless there's resurrection and eternal life? Take it from the great teacher Jesus. Not even death can break the everlasting covenant promise of God to us. Let's pray. Father, grant to us to